Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, where we're going to be looking at day 3 in creation, when God creates the land, the sea, and the plants. So pray with me as uh, we look at the text. Father, we come before you now thankful for your word, which tells us what happened at the very beginning, which tells us about how you created the heavens and the earth and all they contain. Father, as we look at your word, we marvel at what you did, for it is a demonstration of your majesty, your power, your greatness. Father, as we consider um, your wonders, those things you have performed, the evidence of which are still around today, Father, um, it humbles us. It makes us want to praise you. It makes us want to trust you. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to understand you better and to live for your glory more diligently. Father, we pray for those at Calvary who are hurting this Christmas season as we approach the holidays. Father, I just think of those who have lost loved ones or those who uh, just for various circumstances are hurting. I pray that you would give them Great joy in yourself, great joy in your word, great joy in the fellowship of the saints. And Father, that they would find a refuge in Christ and happiness and contentment in him. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, that we would be changed and leave here different people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine what it must have been like at creation to see all of those things that God spoke into existence out of nothing. Now, when we create something, if we, you know, make a masterpiece, we take things that we bought somewhere or got from somebody, and then we, you know, paint or craft or mold into something else. God, though, though he does that, and it mentions that in the text, first speaks into existence things which never before existed. He creates ex nihilo, which we learned is the Latin word, which means out of nothing. The first thing God did is uh, he took this formless and void nothingness and he called into existence the earth and all of its elements. But at first it wasn't a ball, a sphere. It was just the pieces, the matter out of which he would form the earth. Then he took all that matter and he formed it into a ball or a sphere. And that sphere was at first covered with water, uh, about uh, two miles deep of water. Uh, Somebody informed me from the first service that I said 200, that's a lot of water, about two miles deep in water. Um, And what's interesting is the earth at that time was just a dark, water-covered sphere of matter. Then God spoke the light into existence, and light shone on the earth from all different directions at one time. There was no sun, there were no planets, there was nothing but a ball of covered with water in the vastness of the deep of space, nothing else, and then God gathered the light that he had created to one side of the earth. There was still no sun, so we say, well, how did he do that? I don't know, he's God, you know, so that's what he did. Then he started the earth spinning on its axis so that it would experience night and day, 24-hour rotations. 
And that's pretty much uh, what he did at the, the first part of the day. And then what he did is he separated the waters uh, that he had put on the surface of the earth. He separated them into waters above and waters below. And in between those waters made the atmosphere or as most Bibles say, the firmament, which is another way to describe the sky. And we learned how incredible this plan was. You know, we think, so what's the big deal about waters above and waters below? Well, if you were here, uh, we learned some amazing things about that. What would be the advantage of having a whole bunch of water floating in space and forms of vapor, not clouds. Clouds are opaque. Vapor is translucent. Why put a huge vapor canopy around the world? Why would God do that? Well, the reasons we cited uh, are many. Uh, For one reason, pretty much all the harmful rays of the sun would be filtered out. So you wouldn't need to wear sunscreen ever. Not only that, you would live longer. Not only that, the weight of the atmosphere would 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 increase the atmospheric pressure. And when all the plants that were growing in the world began to grow, it would increase the oxygen content of the atmosphere. They actually uh, have done some pretty neat things with what is called amber, which is petrified tree sap. They found petrified tree sap from before the flood. And they have taken that petrified tree sap that has air bubbles locked into it, very carefully drilled into it, extracted the air, and analyzed it under a mass spectrometer to discover that the oxygen content in the pre-flood world was twice what it is today. Now, if you have uh, a lot of extra oxygen today, you, you get oxygen toxicity. The way you prevent that is you increase the atmospheric pressure. And then you can handle it. So before the flood, there was a lot of oxygen from a lot of plants and which would give you incredible stamina. You could probably just run forever. Not only that, you would heal up quicker. Not only that, you would grow bigger. You know, it's interesting that all the ferns and all the plants and the dinosaurs are huge before The flood. Why is that? They've done some tests. They've actually taken some tropical fish, which grow to about six to eight inches. They've put them in an aquarium and then put that aquarium in what is called a hyperbaric chamber. A hyperbaric chamber is when they increase the atmospheric pressure and the level of oxygen. They've been able to grow these little six to eight inch fish to five pounds. And they can only grow with more atmospheric pressure and increased oxygen. So this helps us understand why everything was bigger and better before the flood, because God had created this vapor canopy over the world, and it would also um, distribute the heat more evenly. Right now, mostly that's done by the oceans, but then you have the oceans and you have the vapor canopy. So the whole world was a tropical paradise, and that is why we find tropical forests underneath the polar caps. That is where all the vegetation from those huge pockets of coal and oil, that's where they came from. When the flood came, huge amounts of vegetation were swept off the surface of the earth and piled up and covered up into what we call coal deposits. That's why we can drive our cars. 
Because God foresaw that this would happen. He planned it this way and he made it so that we would have these incredible energy reserves called crude oil and coal. And we still use that. And you say, well, just go up to somebody who's a geologist and say, now, how did all those plants get buried deep, deep into the ground? Well, we aren't quite sure. It's because they don't believe the Bible. But the Bible says that's how it happened. Uh, A lot of times, uh, those who study dinosaurs, paleontologists, will look at them and say, how does this huge creature, how can it function um, with such a limited lung capacity? Because there was twice as much oxygen. And since then, we have reptiles, the same kinds that were alive back then, but are much smaller. Why? Less oxygen, less atmospheric pressure. We discussed how this thick vapor canopy collapsed at the flood. What happened was, is is it fell down. That's why there was so much water. There's another reason, we're going to look at it today, um, why there was so much water. So today, if you were to take all the land masses, level them out on the surface of the, the earth, the globe of the earth, it would be covered two miles deep in water. Two miles deep, everything would be covered in water. That's how it was at the beginning, but then God made the land masses, which we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bible, look at Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. God's word says, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening. And there was morning, a third day. Now in our text, um, we see uh, twice, uh, it says God said, once God called, and another time God saw. God is the primary mover here. God is the one who's speaking things into existence. And from our text, I want to point out three different aspects of creation on the third day. Uh, So you can understand how God formed the land and how incredible that is. You may think, well, what's that? You just got a whole bunch of dirt. Uh, No, it's a lot better than that. How he formed the seas and how he formed the vegetation. So you can marvel at his handiwork. So you can praise him. And hopefully, if you don't know Christ, so you can come to Jesus Christ in faith. First, God caused the seas and lakes to appear. Look at verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let me just stop there. Remember, we learned the Bible speaks of the heavens in three different ways. There is the heavens uh, where birds fly. The atmosphere, we're going to see that a little bit further down the text. I think what, um, yeah, uh, verse uh, 22, um, the birds fly in the heavens and the atmosphere. Then you have the heavens where the stars are. That's outer space. The planets and stars and comets are all out there in outer space. Then you have the heavens, which are the abode of God, which is where God dwells in that supernatural realm. 
So in our text, if you look at verse 9, um, it's really talking about the atmosphere. He's talking about the atmosphere here, waters below the atmosphere or the heavens. Um, it also called the firmament earlier on. We looked at that before. And he gathers them, assembles them, collects them into one spot. Now imagine what it would be like to be back then on the third day of creation, being in a helicopter, hovering over the waters, when God said, let the land masses appear, let the seas be gathered up. Now, it's hard to speak of just the seas. We'll be talking about the land in a middle bit, minute, but they both happen together because in order for the land to appear, the seas had to be gathered. But just think of the volumes of water that were moved around in just a moment. How huge depressions were made in the floors of the oceans and huge masses of water, just giant waves and churning. All of this is going on and God is telling the seas to retreat so that dry land can appear, so that the dry surface of the land can show up. Skip ahead a bit and look at the middle of verse 10, uh, where he mentions also the waters again there. He says, and, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And this word seas is a word which uses, is used to describe all bodies of water, whether they be lakes or seas or oceans. It just means a large body of water. And so it's talking about all those things. Now, keep in mind, at this time, the, the waters were all fresh waters. There wasn't all the salt water we have today. And you may think, well, Jack, how do you know that? Well, first of all, because most plants would be killed if you let them grow in salt water. And we're going to learn here that pretty soon uh, God is watering everything with the waters. And so if they were salt waters, it would kill a, a lot of the plants. And the other thing is, is that scientists over the course of time have been able to measure the salt content in the ocean. Now, uh, if you remember your science, you probably remember the hydrological cycle. The hydrological cycle is that cycle where water evaporates mostly from the oceans of the world. It goes up into the sky. It forms into clouds as it goes over land masses. It rains or snows, and then that rushes down. It flows down into rivers, and then rivers go into the ocean. Well, when the, the water hits the surface, of the earth, it leaches out salts and minerals from the earth. Those then flow into the sea and increase the sea's salt content. Why? Because when the water evaporates from the ocean, the salt stays in the ocean, but water comes out. So over the course of time, scientists have been able to measure the salt content of the ocean and seen that it increases at a steady rate because of the hydrological cycle. Now, what's really fascinating is once scientists are able to determine the rate at which the oceans of the world are increasing in salt content, they can then extrapolate backwards to find out when the waters were fresh. And it takes you back to 5,000 years. It's almost like the Bible's true. God takes you back right there. You, you, just, you say, okay, so we know the waters were fresh at one time. Of course, uh, you say, well, I thought the flood was you know, maybe 4,000 years ago. Yeah, but there was this huge event which have caused a lot of minerals to enter the water called the flood. So that probably caused a lot of leaching to occur. Uh, just this week, I was 
fiddling around on Google and I saw this big white place and I thought, man, why is, why did Google take this picture of the United States and why did they take this section in the middle of winter when everything else is green? And then I looked on it, it was the Bonneville Salt Flats. Huge quantities of salt by Salt Lake City. So, the water, waters were fresh at the beginning because of the hydrological cycle. The Bible actually uh, speaks of the hydrological cycle. It doesn't actually use hydrological cycle. But listen to these texts. Job chapter 36, verses 27 through 29. Uh, Job says, For he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds poured down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Psalm 135 verse 7 says, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Later, Solomon also alludes to this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 where he says this, Blowing toward the south, then turning towards the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow. There they flow again. So Solomon has observed some pretty cool things. He's observed that though all these rivers are dumping into the ocean, the ocean doesn't get full. Instead, there's clouds that rain some more on the land. And this is the hydrological cycle. He also observes uh, what's interesting. He says, he talks about the wind swirling along in circular courses. Now, if you've ever seen one of those pictures of like a hurricane or something, or you've looked at the Doppler radar, you see things swirling, right? And that is because uh, on the northern side of the hemisphere, uh, You have high pressures turning in clockwise rotations and low pressures turning in counterclockwise rotations. Now, it's interesting. If you're on a boat and you drive straight through a storm, this is what happens. The wind starts blowing and it starts blowing really hard, really fast. The waves are coming. Let's say they're coming from the left and they're coming like crazy. And then all of a sudden, uh, you punch through, you start going towards the center, and they become calmer and calmer. In the middle, there's no wind. And then you keep going, and pretty soon, there's more wind going the opposite direction, swirling and swirling. And so, you can actually tell, if you're out on the ocean, that there are low-pressure and high-pressure systems rotating in certain directions, because the wind blows one direction, it gets calm, and blows the other direction, which tells you, that they rotate. Of course, we know that now because we have satellites and Solomon figured it out. Now, when evaporation takes place, because all those minerals are in the water, um, they, they, they slowly accumulate. And so we know by extrapolating backwards, things were fresh. The waters were fresh then. You could drink it and plants could absorb it and it wouldn't kill the plants. So look at verse 10, where we read, and God saw that it was good. This is the second time he says that. He also said that of light in verse 4. Um, he's going to say it again in verses 12, 18, 21, and 25. And then once he gets everything, everything finished and it's not just good but it's completed then he's going to say in verse 31 it's very good 
It'll be actually more, it should be perfect then, actually. Uh, it will be perfect. God's creation is perfect. We need to remember that the world we live in today is not a perfect world. Even if you go to Yosemite, and even if you go to Yellowstone Park, even if you go to the most beautiful places in the world, and you look at it, and you're just awed by how beautiful it is, you're looking at the sin-cursed dregs of the pre-flood world. You're looking at the, the part that's cursed and has been under the curse ever since creation and the fall of man. Think about that. Just how beautiful it would have been when God made the world perfect without a single flaw, perfect in beauty. And of course, water is just a critical part of that. Humans uh, and pretty much you know, every other living thing needs water for life. Humans are made up of 70% water. Other creatures made up of more water than that. And if you've watched any sort of nature programs, you've probably marveled at some of the things that they tell you in these nature programs. And you just see how fearfully and wonderfully made pretty much everything is. Uh, Mark and I just got through watching a, a few weeks ago uh, some thing on the barrier reef. And it was fascinating. It was about the reproduction of coral, which you wouldn't think would be all that exciting. But it was. It showed these huge coral reefs. And somehow, the coral knows. Knows. When to reproduce. When the tides are the calmest of the whole year, in the middle, the exact middle of high tide and low tide at the full moon. They think, what's that? How do they know that? You know, how do, how do Grunion know when to swim up on the beach? I don't know. Anyways, the coral knows that this is the time. And they send all these little spores out that produce other little corals like that. It was just amazing to see how each of them, some of them had, you know, little things and other little balls and little widgets that come out. I mean, just, it was fascinating to think just how, in that one spot, how many living organisms there were and how they're all radically different. And all of this happens in the seas. And think about how much food comes from the oceans. I mean, imagine if we couldn't eat anything from the ocean. There would be no sushi. You know, I mean, just think about it. Think about all the fish that are in the ocean. I've, I've gone, been in a boat and gone through like miles of anchovies. You know, just a school of anchovies. That's gigantic. I mean, enough to put on every pizza forever. And, and huge schools of tuna. They're just, the water is just boiling with them. Just tons and tons of food. You, you can go out in the middle of the ocean and get giant lights and shine them in the water. And you can get so many squid to come up to the surface that you can just put a conveyor belt and they'll just come on board. It's amazing how much life is in the ocean. And God, of course, is preparing these waters so that he can feed his creation. He's setting up house for his creation. It's amazing. 
Secondly, God causes the dry land to appear. We've alluded to it already, but let's focus on it a little bit more. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, and let dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And just think about this. Dry land um, is the same word we find in Exodus chapter 14. Remember when, when Moses uh, divided the Red Sea and dry land appeared? Same word, same process. There was a dividing, a separating of the waters, which made dry land appear. It's the same thing happening in our text. God is gathering the seas, but at the same time, he has to be depressing, um, uh, making indentations in the ocean floor so that the water can flow into them, but at the same time, raise up the continents... And just imagine how that looked. I hope that in heaven we have some sort of, you know, heavenly Blu-ray so we can see it. So we can say, could you, could you show us how you did that? Could we watch? And God goes, sure, check this out. You know, how, what, is, what does a continent look like when it comes up out of the water? Think of that. Just mind-blowing. So that's what's happening. All this, the continent is pulling up out of the water. This two miles of water is just gushing out. And of course, lakes are forming and drainages and rivers and streams and all of this stuff is coming. But that's not all. There's something very complex, which is not really visible on the surface of all this dry land that God makes appear. And that is under the surface of the ground, God makes this gigantic labyrinth of tunnels. Huge labyrinth of tunnels. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we know that because that's how he decided to water the earth. There was no rain. There was no rain. What God did is he created the first irrigation system. Look at Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, and we'll see that there was how things were watered before the flood. We read in Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now that word mist there, that's a bad translation. A lot of them have used that. It really means a flow. The NIV has its streams, which is probably more accurate. But the idea is it would just flow up from the ground. That's how it would work. We have another hint about the continents that we can add to that. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, you can also see another little um, a bit of information that we can kind of add to our understanding as we consider what the continents were like then. Uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, we're told, um, uh, this is at the flood, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh, 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. Notice, the fountains of the great deep burst open. We already talked about the floodgates of the sky being open, but here there's fountains of the deep. The fountain, this word fountain here, which is very interesting, is a word which describes water that kind of like comes out of the ground. 
in a spring or out of the side of a mountain, not in a river, but out of just out of the ground, like the 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 head of a stream or the head of a spring, an artesian well just coming up from the ground. Well, there's a place in Idaho, which probably a lot of you have heard about. It's called Sun Valley. It's a famous ski resort. It's where a lot of the rich and famous people do things in the winter. And uh, near Sun Valley, which is kind of a small town and associated with this giant ski resort, is another town called Ketchum, Idaho. And running from above Ketchum and through Ketchum and south of Ketchum is this the Big Wood River. And if you're near Ketchum, it is. It's a big river. But what's interesting is that river slowly disappears and at some times in the summer becomes the non-river. It just disappears. Other times it's just a small stream. Well, you think, well, what happened? What happened to the big wood? Why do they also call it the lost wood river? Well, what's interesting is there's this little town that's a little bit further south called Peekaboo. Now, you might have heard of Peekaboo. It has two claims to fame. First, uh, in the 1989 Olympics, there was a gold medalist skier named Peekaboo Street. And Peekaboo Street's uh, parents, they, she was born near there, and they thought, well, let's call her Peekaboo. So that's one reason. But there's another reason, and that's because the greatest trout stream in the world is located there, Silver Creek. Silver Creek comes from... Water that gushes out of the ground, the Big Wood River. The waters from the Big Wood disappear into the ground, go underneath the ground, and then in different places in this one section boil up. The one major section is called Sullivan Slough. And in Sullivan Slough, it's about three feet deep, and it's just this huge pond full of giant lunker, extremely smart trout. And if you wade out in there, there, the the bottom is like gravel about the size of large grapes. Uh, it's limestone. And when you stand there, you can just see the water just boiling up through this coarse gravel. It's amazing. It's amazing. And when the water goes in, it's got junk in it, but it filters out in the earth and it comes out at the perfect temperature for raising trout. And it's considered the Silver Creek has more aquatic life in it than pretty much any other stream in the world. And this is how it was before the flood. This is how it was. This is what God is making. He's constructing this gigantic irrigation system to water not just a little place, but the whole continent or continents. We don't know if there was just one um, continent or not. This tells us another thing that at that time, the continents were pretty much flat. You say, well, where did the mountains come from? Mountains come from what is called continental drift and plate tectonics. What happens is when huge bodies of, of land shift and collide together, it causes mountain ranges to form. You could take like a wet paper towel or even a dry cloth or whatever. You can grab it. And what happens if you crush it together? Ripples appear. Well, next time you get on Google Maps, look. Look at the United States and see what you see. Ripples appearing. Why? Because the land was compressed and so mountain ranges shot up. That's where mountain ranges come from. But they weren't there before the flood. 
God watered the entire surface of the land masses. And we don't know, you know, if there were dry spots, but I don't think so. Because, man, there is a lot of vegetation that was buried in the coal deposits and oil deposits of the world. There's a lot still buried under the polar caps. There's stuff we haven't found yet. Lots and lots of plants. Just gazillions of plants. And so all of this, God is forming. And because there's a vapor canopy above the earth, the earth is like a perfect greenhouse. For plants to just absolutely thrive in. Now consider what we learned from the last land masses being watered by flows of water. This tells us that the ground must have been porous in some places because the water would flow up. Well, it was probably very similar to to Venice. If you've ever been to Venice or if you've ever seen pictures of Venice or if you know about Venice, you know that Venice is a city that is built, uh, for a large majority of the city is built on water, over the water. Now you might think, why did they do that? You know, they don't really know why Venice is built over the water, but they do know this. Uh, They do know that it's built on these pylons and this is what they think. They think that in earlier times, maybe very early Roman times, people Poor people lived by the water. And because you, when you're poor, you can't afford any land, where do you live? You know, you, you, nobody wants you, you know, squatting on their land. So it's like, hey, we don't want any squatters here. You stay away. You know, so you're going, well, where are we going to live? Well, I know. Let's drive some posts into the marsh, through the sand, into the clay below. And they would get these big alder posts, like telephone poles, drive them in. And then they would build their houses on them. Well, pretty soon other people are going, hey. You got your own house. Well, can I build mine next to yours? And we'll just like build a little wall. Sure. So pretty soon a city started to be built over the water. Now, what's really fascinating is because the waters that are coming out of the river there and the ocean are so low in oxygen content, the, the wood hasn't rotted. And there's so many minerals inside um, the water that it's been absorbing into the trees. And now those early trees are petrified. So it's all the buildings, some of them, there's still multiple story buildings resting on 400 year old petrified pylons. Isn't that cool? Makes you want to go there huh? and fall in. I mean, yeah, just to see that. Well, what's interesting is this is kind of how uh, the early continents must have been. There must have been all these tunnels and labyrinths under the ground and and supporting the land masses right above the waters. But there's a problem. So how did the water come up? You know, if the water flowed, who turned on the sprinkler system? Did God say, okay, well, let's have a flood now. Let's cause the water to rise up. Or what? What happened? Well, think about it. Think about it. Today... There are, we know there's, there used, there's a lot of caves that used to have water in them. There's certain people who like to crawl around in caves. They're called spelunkers. And uh, spelunkers like to go exploring in caves. And what's interesting is there's a lot of caves, huge labyrinths of caves, and they used to be all full of water. They can tell they used to be full of water, but they're not quite sure, um, you know, how, where all that water went to and why they used to have water and now they don't. But we know. Because we got the Bible. So God created this big system of caves. And then what would cause the 
the waters to rise and fall. Well, what causes the ocean waters to rise and fall? The tides, the pull of the moon on the waters. Those waters would still be there. The moon would still pull them. Now, now granted, the moon isn't going to be created, I think, for one more day. But, you know, they would be one day without function, total function. But the next day, as soon as the moon would show up, then what would happen is, is, is there's two tides a day when the earth rotates. So the waters, if you have ever lived near or on the ocean, um, you notice that the waters rise and then they subside and they rise and they subside. So it's very well that there's this labyrinth of tunnels over the entire continent. And when the gravity pulls, what happens is this fresh water comes up through the porous parts of the earth and waters all the plants and then subside. So twice a day they get watered. Now, this is what's really awesome. There's a super advanced kind of growing. It's like the super tech way to grow plants. It's called hydroponics. Hydroponic greenhouses grow plants. And what they do is they put the plants into channels and and different um, uh, medium that they can flood. Usually about twice a day. There's no soil. They start the plant, they have this coarse little medium, they flood it, and then they let it go. The plants then have a lot of air, they have a lot of nutrients, and man, you can produce a lot of vegetation in a very small spot. So what's interesting is God, when he created the continent, and we don't know if there's if there was kind of one that kind of wrapped around near the equator or whether it was... You know, we don't know what it looked like because the flood messed everything up. But whatever it was, it was pretty flat and it had this huge watering system. And so every day there was no rain. Probably twice a day there was flooding and subsiding. And the plants grew like crazy. And the whole earth was a tropical paradise. Just a lush, thriving, green environment with even temperatures which is why we find all that vegetation in all those places all around the world where you wouldn't really expect to find tropical forests under the polar caps because that's how it was thus the plants would have enjoyed a hydroponic type atmosphere being uh, watered probably twice a day by the tides of the subterranean water. Thus the ebb and flow, the mineral content, the things from the soil would have just made them just explode. And that's exactly what we find. Giant things, um, giant plants. You know, you have, you, you go home and you water your little ficus or whatever, and then you find them petrified and they're gigantic because they have not just good growing environments, perfect growing environments perfect with you could not increase you could not increase the environment to make them grow any better they are perfectly suited created both the environment and the plants themselves to perfectly grow and that's how it was before the curse before the flood we often think that we're really smart You know, we're smarter than God. We're more just than God. We are wiser than God. But just think about what God has done this. God is so far beyond our intellect. He has created not only an irrigation system, but one that spans all the continents or the continent that existed then all at one time. And there's no workers. There's no like electrical timer. He doesn't have to get the angels down there and open certain gates and close them. The whole world is created 
and self-sustaining. It's just, it just blows you away to think that God did that. It just, it's amazing. It's amazing. He formed a tropical paradise. And look at the end of verse 10. And God saw that it was good. The phrase God saw that it was good applies to both the sea and the land. So God knew what he was doing. He purposely did what he did so that he could create a perfect environment that he would eventually put animals and man and make this paradise. Third, God caused the plants to appear. Look at verse 11. After God gathered up the waters and raised up the land masses, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Now, this is like the the greatest understatement that ever was. The word vegetation here probably just refers to all kinds of plants, whatever they be. It does have a certain root of that word, which can mean dampness. So some thought maybe plants that grow well in kind of a marshy atmosphere. But as I've just said, the whole continent seemed to be hydroponic. So they all would have kind of a damp atmosphere. And um, so I think it's probably best to just take that as just regular anything green, any sort of plants, and probably also including mosses and fungi and lichen and all that that kind of stuff, which would be included in those categories. Later on, we're going to have two categories given the the plants yielding seed and plants bearing fruit. But the beginning of verse 11 is an absolutely amazing statement because the, the implications are staggering. They're staggering to think about what God did. According to Life Science, quote, the National Science Foundation's Tree of Life Project estimates that there could be anywhere from 5 million to 100 million species of plants on the planet, but science has only identified about 2 million, end quote. Not only that, there are some 12,000 different kinds of cataloged mosses. Not only that, there are an estimated 1.4 million different kinds of fungi. And I'd even look up lichen, I got tired. Um, But the point is, there's so many kinds. And listen, all of those millions and millions of plants and mosses and fungi and lichen, all of those things God spoke into existence out of nothing, each one different than the other. Each leaf different, each bark different, each seed different, each reproduction different, every single one different than the other. And, he just, and, and, and the text just says, let the earth sprout vegetation. <laughs> Come on. It's just like, whoa. And God did it. It boggles my mind. You know, often we just go through life and we just take things for, for granted. It's like, yeah, that wind blew all those leaves into my yard. You know what you need to do is you just need to reach down and grab one of those leaves and just look at it. Just look at it. Look at its design. Look at the veins. Look at how everything is organized and just say, does this look like something that like happened by accident? No way. And plants are so amazing because they have these roots. And and what's interesting about the roots is the roots have a symbiotic relationship. Do you like that? Symbiotic. Uh, That is, they partner up with fungi. So that the fungi takes nutrients from the roots, but then the fungi help the roots gain a lot more nutrients from the soil. 
It's cool. It's all these fungi called mycorrhiza. It's really cool. Not only that, you have these plants that have leaves, and each leaf is a little photocell factory. It's called photosynthesis, and scientists kind of know how it works, but they can't make it work artificially. They would love to be able to do so, but God did. God made it happen millions of times. Sunlight comes down and the leaves are like little solar collectors. They're able to take sunlight energy and water and nutrients and turn it into energy for the plant to grow and produce other carbon matter. What is that? That is so awesome. That is fearfully and wonderfully made. Think of how amazing that it is that all the water and the nutrients can be drawn up into the tallest tree. Up to the the very heights of the highest and tallest sequoia to the very top branch to the very top needle. A large sequoia um, sucks out of the ground about 150 gallons of water a day. That's 1,200 pounds of water. Vertical. Straight up with no elevator, no pumps, no check valves. I mean, when you learn about lifting water vertically, it's a major deal. Because water weighs so much per foot. It has every foot of water. If you measure at a bottom of just one foot of water, you have so much pressure. So every time you add a foot, it doubles and, and, and the pressure keeps increasing, increasing. You go up to the height of some of these trees. You're talking like 370 plus feet vertical the amount of pressure and yet the trees by some sort of cool process that we use in our water filters because we stole the technology from creation called reverse osmosis basically through capillary action is able to draw up all that water vertically into the highest of the redwoods it just blows you away to think about it and to think how God made those trees so that they could absorb sunlight and moisture and how all of that works together to make that giant tree you can drive your car through. It's just, it's just amazing. Not only that, every one of the fungi and lichen and mosses and plants that God made each has its own DNA. And DNA is just insanely complex. DNA is just little microscopic strands of organized engineered information information that is so incredible that we we can't produce it only god can make it and god what's interesting put different dna in every single cell of every single plant think about that And that you can take a tiny little seed and you can pluck it into the ground and wait long enough and pretty soon you've got yourself a 380 foot tall sequoia or cactus or whatever other kind of plant you can think of. And believe me, that didn't happen by chance. That didn't happen by chance. God designed it that way. And what's interesting, evolution argues that first marine animals came into being, and then after millions and billions of years, plants started to accidentally happen, and the DNA accidentally happened for them, and all that stuff. And that plants have a common ancestor, you know, they can all go back. No, no, no. DNA does not just happen by chance. Life does not happen by chance. God must make it. 
Look at the middle of verse 11 where we are told a little bit more about the vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Evolution says, you know, that, oh no, plants turn into something else and then they turn into other species and kind of this plant chain. No, never happens. Take a banana tree, it only produces bananas. It never produces anything but bananas. You can get, you know, apples and make other apple trees, but you never can make another tree. They only produce after their kind. Apple trees never produce bananas and cherry trees never produce kumquats. It never happens. They only produce after their kind. And what's interesting is, If evolution is right, they say first the marine animals happen and then later on the plants and then millions of years later the insects. Well, if that was true, we'd be in trouble. Why? Because most plants, a lot of plants, need insects to propagate. So when God created this, of course, the insects aren't going to show up for a couple more days, but God made them to function together in this perfect, and the big word is symbiotic, this perfect complementary relationship the word seed and its derivatives appears 10 times in genesis 1 and after their kind also appears 10 times in genesis 1 letting us know that things only produce other things like them and what's interesting is the whole fruit thing that god would make some some plants that had seeds encased in some sort of fruit now when you go to the grocery store what do you see you see about 20 30 40 kinds of fruit i think you know Apples, oranges, bananas, pears, you know, cherries, berries, different things like that. But that's just a small fraction. Right now, there, there's about 2,000 different kinds of fruit. But, you know, Americans get used to what they're... We, we don't want to eat some sort of lumpy, spiny fruit. It's like, man, I'm eating that. I've always eaten bananas, apples, and oranges, and that's all. Um, but there's a lot of fruit. And what's interesting, they're all a different color. They're all a different shape. Their seeds all look different. They taste all different. God did that. It's all contained in that phrase. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Wham! Millions of actions happen simultaneously. It's just, it's mind-boggling. And look at verse 12. It says, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, the trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. You know, it's just, when you look at this, you just see that God has produced things in so many ways. I mean, just think about all the seeds and how seeds are made. Think about corn and the cob. You know, here's this plant. It looks like a giant grass and you pop off a little Christmas wrap grain pod. You know, and you unwrap it and, hey... There's some good stuff on the inside. And then inside that is a cob. Why? For pipes. I don't know. Cord cob pipes, I guess. I don't know. But why is that? You know, it's like, I don't know why. Why do peanuts grow in the ground? I don't know. I don't know. It's just odd. It's just odd. Have you ever seen pistachios? Strange. I mean, there's so many different kinds of nuts and weird things that there's seeds of all different kinds and all different shapes and all different sizes. I used to have a greenhouse and one time I ordered some seeds and I thought, man, what happened? Because inside the little packet, there was this little tiny glass vial about an inch long. I thought, what's that? And I picked up the vial and I looked in the very bottom and there was a little bit of rusty stuff in there. And so I thought, hmm. So I looked up the plant and discovered the seeds are 
have three million seeds per ounce. (laughs) So you take the vial, you basically pack the soil, get it wet. You take the vial, you pop it off and you just sprinkle them. And about three weeks later, you look and see there's little tiny specks of green. You know, you look at that and then you look at a filbert and it's just, wow, all different, all different. And look at verse 13. And there was evening, God says, and there was morning a third day. For you who don't know Christ, you need to see what God's creation is telling you. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. When you go outside and you see trees and plants and lichen and mosses, they are a billboard to tell you there is a great God. He is powerful. He is awesome. He is wise. And he wants you to get to know his son. He's revealed himself through creation. There is a God. And when you're, you're going through life, you're, not, you're going to be without excuse because creation is crying out to you, there is a creator. You better get to know him. And believer, you who know Jesus Christ as your savior, you need to stop and make sure you don't, just pass by the marvels of God's creation, the cross section of a carrot, you know, a head of lettuce, you know, how peanuts are put together in two halves and have that little kind of petrified sprout in the middle because they've been roasted and salted. You know, look at things, look at the leaves, look at the trees, look at things. When you, when you get your Christmas tree and hopefully it's not fake, if you get one, that's real. And you know, you've got your noble fur. Just look at it. Look at the, look at the, the needles and how they all bend up like this. And there's none on the bottom. They're only at the top and they're rounded at the bottom and they're two angled at the top and they all curve and they're all pointy at the end. And they all absorb sun from two different angles. It's so cool. They do photosynthesis and look at the bark. Look at all of that design in all of those plants around your house. The ones we drive by every day, the ones that bloom in the spring and the fall and the the winter. I mean, there's just things God made everything different and amazing so that we would praise him, so that we would worship him, so that we would glorify him. Don't let it go by. We serve a God who is a great God of creation and he has sent his son to this world that we might have a personal relationship with him through faith. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in showing us just a glimpse of what happened on the third day of creation. What amazing, amazing things you have done. We can only guess at what it must have looked like. We, we look forward to heaven when maybe you can show us. And Father, we pray for those here who don't know you, those who have gone through life just eating plants and eating things that eat plants and enjoying vegetation and liking the grass and seeing the beauty and the flowers and everything and never stopping to really realize that you are crying out through your creation. That the, the earth and all of its works are declaring the glory of God. 
And that you are the God who loves sinners so much you sent your only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to bear our sins in his body on that tree so we, through faith in him, could receive the free gift of eternal life. If there is someone here now and your spirit is willing to work in them, may they turn to Christ in faith, may they turn from their sins, may they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to worship the God of creation. And for the rest of us, as we leave here today, may we marvel at your creation as we're eating lunch as we're enjoying that salad, as we drive by trees, as we look at the grass, and we see how fearfully and wonderfully made your creation is. And may we give you glory because of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.